Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and this is Invest Like the Best. This show is an open-ended exploration of markets, ideas, methods, stories, and of strategies that will help you better invest both your time and your money. You can learn more and stay up to date at InvestorFieldGuide.com. Patrick O'Shaughnessy is a principal and portfolio manager at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guest today is Christian Rudder, who is the first of hopefully many guests who are not investors per se. Christian's career arc seems too interesting to be true. He's best known as a founder and CEO of OkCupid, the popular dating site, but I'll let him walk you through the rest. He's a data and math junkie, a musician, and a very interesting thinker and business person. We discuss, among other things, interesting trends in OkCupid's data, artificial intelligence, the NSA, and great books on the Civil War. For show notes, visit InvestorFieldGuide.com forward slash Rudder. R-U-D-D-E-R. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Christian Rudder. Good morning, Christian. Thanks very much for doing this with me today. Um, maybe we'll start with a couple origin stories. One very short, um, how I came to be in, in your living room this morning, and then a, a little bit longer one, kind of your backstory, since a lot of people won't be familiar, certainly will be familiar with your work and your businesses, but maybe not you personally. Um, so just so, so people know, since it's a kind of an odd connection, I met Christian through Jeff Graham, who was the first episode guest on the podcast, friends, I think, for a long time. And he recommended that I reach out to Christian. And it turned out in the course of our conversation that I was a huge fan of Dataclism. Christian's book. So tiny little world here and, and really excited to be here with you today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So maybe we could start with your story, kind of a, a quick narrative, um, kind of the, the, the highlights of your career, mainly because it's kind of been all over the place. You've done a lot of interesting things. Um, and I'm particularly most interested in the transitions and how sometimes a career flows very naturally. It seems like you've jumped from entire different arenas to new arenas. So maybe how you how you got to each spot. Yeah, I mean, it'll be hard to kind of connect it into a, a whole theory uh, or a whole story. I mean, I I guess I was I was a founder of OkCupid, which is a dating site. That That's probably the kind of tentpole of my life, I guess. Um, I was also the main songwriter in a band called Bishop Allen, also played in the band. I was one of the people who helped make Sparknotes. I wasn't a founder, but joined very early on, which is Sparknotes are like study guides, kind of modern day Cliff's Notes, I guess. And I wrote Dataclism, as you know, and I, I guess I did that not chronologically. I guess what was the first major, was it the band? Like when you came out of school, what did you, what did you do right out of school? Well, uh, when I came out of school, I was actually working, I, I had started this I won't even call it a software company, but I wrote this program with my friend uh, called Report Engine, which was like for stockbrokers. It was like a random idea. My girlfriend's dad at the time was a stockbroker and he like needed something and I made it. Um, it was a, What did it do? Did it pull? It didn't even pull away. Like we weren't even like that ahead of the game. This was like 98. So it, yeah, you entered in from statements what was going on in an account and it made all these really nice reports and charts and stuff actually a lot like how dataclism ended up <laughs> to kind of tie the room together so to speak so we did that we really didn't know what we were doing we sold a few 
copies of it, but you know, unquestionably a, a failure. It didn't really go anywhere. And then I moved to Austin where I was there for like three months. And my main job was baking bread at this place, Texas French bread. But while I was there, this was like 90 spring of 99. So this was like the heyday of like internet boom town. I applied for a bunch of random.com jobs. And one of them was uh, for the spark.com, AKA spark notes. Um, I got that job. Um, I sent in some writing samples. They hired me. It turns out I knew, they were also Harvard guys and I knew them, one of them from math class. I was a math major. And, but I was hired to be a comedy writer essentially um, and make basically viral content. The spark was one of the few places that, that was making viral stuff back then. I mean, we, we had like the first online purity test. I mean, this is like, you know, this is like Paleolithic internet times, basically, you know. So how did it work? Because I remember using Sparknotes in college, yeah, uh-huh. um, but basically just going to the books page and, and use, using that content. So this wh- is like way before. I mean, you're 31, right? So this is way before you ever would have used it. It used to be the Spark and Sparknotes as two separate URLs. The Spark was like the the stuff that brought people to Sparknotes. It was kind of a genius plan, uh, which I didn't think of, so I can say that. It was like... The Spark had tons of time-wasting stuff, like things to read, dumb tests to take, all of this kind of thing, toys, web toys, and that would appeal to high school and college students. And so they would pass all these things around, waste their time, not study while they're playing around on the Spark. Lo and behold, hey, <laughs> student who hasn't studied, check out our new product, Spark Notes, um, which when I joined, I think only had Hamlet and maybe Macbeth. So only had two guides. We offered Spark Notes to kind of like solve the problem that we had uh, that we had created, and Spark Notes took off. Uh, and, and later they shut down the Spark after I left because it was kind of one of these things. Me and um, m- my friend and OKCupid co-founder Chris Coyne, we wrote everything, and as soon as we were gone, there was kind of no point to continue. Spark Notes was big enough on its own at that point. Anyway, so I left Spark Notes in 2002. We started OKCupid in 2003, really right around the same time that I started the band Bishop Allen kind of did both of those things at once. The first few years were more Bishop Allen than OkCupid. And then once I started writing the blog uh, for OkCupid, where we kind of took all our data and, you know, analyzed it, had had some kind of cool graphs about race and sex and attraction and all that stuff. That was about 2009. Then I just kind of was full-time OkCupid until I left OkCupid in 2015. So in the band, were you touring a lot? Were you on the road? Yeah, those those years from like 2004 to say 2008 or nine was was... Maybe three months out of the year I was on tour. Wow. Yeah, it was it was my, you know, we weren't paying ourselves for OkCupid at that point. So it was like my full-time, my only real job at that point. So it sounds like the strategy at OkCupid mimicked or took some of what worked at Spark slash SparkNotes. Totally. And, 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 and my role was... People in through really interesting content. Exactly. My role actually at OkCupid was at least those first, from say the, the, my first half of my OkCupid time was very similar where I was just writing stuff that would make people realize that OkCupid existed in the same way I was writing stuff at SparkNotes that made people realize SparkNotes existed. So um, I would work on the product and do a little bit of programming here and there, but nothing serious. So It's a good transition into the book, which is at least at, at first, I think an extension of what you were doing on the blog, Yeah, totally. um, but, but then morphs into a lot more, um, including I think some of the best chapters in the book are the later ones where you kind of riff on on things like the NSA and data in general and sort of the quantified self and the collection of data on people sure. um, and sort of identity, which which is great. It's a book for everyone listening that I'm shocked. I read a lot of books. This is a book that should be Gladwellian type <laughs> sales. Um, it, it is that entertaining well, and thanks. interesting. And the reason is because so many books today, these kind of pop sci type books 
are regurgitations or, or, or uh, replications of 10 academic studies with little quaint examples, little stories to um, illustrate those studies. And it just feels kind of all the same. It's almost always with someone else's data. And what's unique about this book is that it's your data, right? It's no, no one else really has access to this or had access to this. So it's trends within a data set that's, that's very unique. Yeah, I really tried to get away from that model of, of, you know, here's an academic finding and here's this kind of quirky example of it in practice that we found in that one factory in, you know, Idaho. So because I knew that I had my own data to mine and I understood it probably better than anybody in the world. So it was, and, and, you know, especially writing about online data in general but specifically data from a dating site. It's just so inherently interesting. I feel like it, 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 I, I had to take advantage of that myself. So this, this is probably our closest area of direct overlap where both of us spend a lot of our times dealing with data, obviously very, very different data sets, sure, yeah. financial statements versus dating, uh, dating information. But can you talk a little bit about your background in working with data, how, you know, what, what tools you use, how you learned, things like that, that people might be able to use themselves if they're interested in this field? Sure. I mean, well, I, I like like I said earlier, I was a math major. Um, I didn't actually take a statistics class. Uh, I was mostly into like algebra and kind of more abstract stuff. Um, but I, you know, a lot of the statistics and data analysis is not like rocket science. In fact, the, the more rocket science it gets, the kind of like, but you, that usually implies the worse your data actually is. So at OkCupid, we never had to bring those tools to bear. But I use... SQL, uh, OkCupid uses SQL to, to store the data. Um, I would use a little bit of Python, um, or I would have, for some more sophisticated things, I would have programmers write a little script for me. Or I would just take a raw dump and put it into Excel. You know, Excel can hold, well, it can hold about a million rows, but, you know, 500,000 with with some room to, to breathe. So I, I did a lot of that in Excel just because I've been using Excel. That very first software program report engine was originally built as this like really arcane set of uh, Excel macros. <laughs> so uh, I, I love that program. So I did a lot of it in Excel. I, everything else is pretty much homespun. I mean, I, I, we I just kind of crunched everything just using basically the raw materials. Like I don't ever use things like... Ah, chart beat or mixed panel or any of that stuff. I don't know. So one of the notable things about the book is the charts. And at the end, you know, you credit Tufty, which is sort of the gold standard of visualization of information. How did you build those? It doesn't look like they were built in Excel. It looks... Oh, they're all in Excel. They yeah. are in mm-hmm. Excel. Yeah, they're Was all there in some Excel. sort of like Tufty package or something that I don't know about? Or did you just do No, it? I just did it. You yeah. just kind of, you just yeah, made you it just, work. You just get in there. Yeah. 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 I mean, some of those things I used using the actual grid rather than a chart. You yeah. know, I would use the grid and, and their, their kind of like heat mapping ability for the different cells. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in general with that stuff and all the, all the graphs on the blog were done in Excel sometimes with like JavaScript overlays that I would write. So they would animate and stuff, you know, this is like 2009, 10, there were basically no charting tools kind of off, off the shelf charting tools or out of the box charting tools. So I just made everything up. So yeah. And I, I, doing the blog and certainly the book and this, I can credit Tufty for like, I really wanted to get away from like the infographic feel where everything is like super designed and there's just tons of like illustrations and everything looks very nice. And that kind of, generic way. Yep. Um, I just wanted it to seem as informational as possible or keep it as information forward as possible. So I mean, this might be a peculiar question. Maybe one you've never been asked, but why did you choose the color red in contrast? Oh, in, to the black? in the book? Well, I had one color to work with. Just that's what they told me. Yep. Um, and given that, you know, like it's, it's almost chooses itself. Like blue is too close to black green. is just kind of weird. And again, it's still dark among the kind of warmer colors. Yellow is too light. 
orange, like, I mean, the, the red is a little bit orangey, but right. you know, it, it's, it's surprisingly easy to settle on red and, and it just kind of like, I mean, also Tufty is an inspiration here. He uses the one color for, for endpoints on his spark lines and stuff like this right. in, in some of his books. So I was like, I'll just use this red, basically. It worked great. The book looks great. So let's dive into some of the data in the book and some of the trends. Sure, um, sure. Maybe a fun one to start with. Maybe it's the low-hanging fruit, but it's a good one I think that people appreciate is is this idea of Wooderson's Law. Can you can you describe what that oh, is? Oh, man, Wooderson's Law. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that Wooderson... The Wooderson in question here is, is Wooderson from Dazed and Confused, which is actually the reason I moved to Austin for those few months anyway, because of that movie. Uh, uh, he says at some point in Dazed and Confused that that's, that's what I love about high school girls, man. Uh, I keep getting older, but they stay the same age. Um, and that viewpoint is basically, at least in the data, the, the viewpoint of collected maleness in general. Like guys, no matter the age, always always pursue the the kind of the youngest woman in in a, the group of women that they're presented with. And so, you know, if 20-year-old uh, guys think 20-year-old women are the hottest, that makes sense. 25-year-old guys think 20-year-old women are the hottest, okay? Um 30, 40, 45-year-old guys think 20-year-old women are the hottest. And you know, like that's it's not exactly an earth-shattering conclusion. You can open a magazine and see all the models are very young. Uh, you, movie stars, certainly female movie stars, there's a huge youth skew there, you know. Um, but it is interesting to see it play out in the real world in terms of the decisions like actual online daters are making in their in their ratings of people and how they contact guys basically go after the youngest women, period. And it's different for women, right? The, the same sort of scatter plot is, is quite different. Yeah, the, the women one is way more sane and in fact reflects... <laughs> what women tell us they're after, which coincidentally is the same thing men tell us that they're after. They want someone near their same age. So women, a 25-year-old woman will say she's looking for a 25-year-old guy or, or will, well, she, she'll say she's looking for a 25-year-old guy and then lo and behold, that's the age of guy she thinks is most attractive. 30-year-old woman thinks 30-year-old guys are most attractive and that's also who she told us she would think was most attractive um, and so on, kind of up that diagonal. You know, 45-year-old women, maybe a little bit younger, but still right, right around their same age. Um, whereas again, guys... A 35-year-old guy will tell us, oh, yeah, you know, I would love a woman who's 30, 32, 33, 34. Uh, that's what he says on the site, goes through. It's all, you know, 20-year-olds. <laughs> so it, this is something that you kind of have to wrestle with. One, one of the many sort of um, challenges of running a dating site, you, there's there's all these uh, kind of warts on the the... The, especially the male, but in general, the human psyche that you have to grapple with and, and kind of try your best to rectify or smooth out so that the site will function. Because obviously these 20 year old women don't want to hear from any 45 year old guys. Right. right. So, so, and we've got to make everybody happy running. Okay. Cupid. So, you know, that, that's just one of the, one of the many kind of sociologically interesting and uh, sort of professionally frustrating aspects of human behavior. One of the other things I found most interesting in the book, which I felt was very broadly applicable, pretty much no matter what you do, if you're if you're in the business of offering a product or service, this seems to be applicable. In this case, the product or service being you know yourself. But the idea of hopefully not a service, but yeah. <laughs> right? The idea of higher variance mm-hmm. um, and this kind of idea of the pratfall effect that you talk about. Uh, maybe touch on on the role of variance in in the success of people dating. Sure, sure. I mean, generally speaking, the better looking you are, the better you do on a dating site for sure. I assume with a high degree of confidence, that's also true in real life, right? The better you do romantically, but within a, say um, a group of people who all are the same amount of good lookingness, so kind of 
a, a kind of like a ISO attractiveness band. Um, the people who exhibit the highest variance in their appeal do by far better. And by variance, I mean, uh, you have, say you're a, a five out of 10. It is better to be, to have half the people think you're a nine and half the people think you're a one than it is to have everyone think you're a five. And that's obviously the most extreme amount of variance of half the people think you're extremely good looking and half the people think you're repulsive. Because what we found is that it's, it, there's, it's almost like an activation energy required in terms of someone approaching you or, or wanting to actually meet you in person, or presumably and date you or whatever. So the, the more variance you have in your look, the better you do. And so an example of a thing that people and, and our users have kind of realized this, and I, I think this is something that people intuitively know in general, you know, you can do, you have a tat, tattoos is a kind of very easy example. There's lots of people who think tattoos are super hot. There are lots of people who think tattoos are just like not for them. They don't, they don't, they don't want to date somebody with a ton of tattoos that works super well. Nose rings, piercings, that kind of thing crazy looking hair, blue hair, you know, whatever, a buzz cut on a woman, for example, um, or really long hair on a guy, maybe, you know, it's almost like you want the people who are predisposed to like you to really like you and everybody else, you don't even care. They might as well hate you essentially to use kind of extreme terms in terms of your dating outcomes. And so we found that, that say a five out of 10 that has a high degree of variance gets the same amount of attention as say a conventionally attractive seven or an eight, you kind of move up a few leagues so to speak, just right. just by being strange looking. So that makes sense on the top end for sure. Obviously, you know, you're getting more people rating you highly. I'm sure there's a high correlation between a high ranking and wanting to meet the person, right? And so high variance makes sense there. But like in things like book sales, for example, they've shown that actually what the best selling many of the best selling books have a lot of one star reviews and a lot of five star reviews. Sure. Yep. So it's maybe there's an an element of controversy or um, something new and different. So tying it back to the idea of like products and services, if you're just offering like an iterative generic version of what everyone else is doing, probably not going to incite a lot of interest. If you're doing something much more new and different, um, some people will hate it. Some people will like it, but maybe talk about the, the, the negative side. So it makes sense. More people rank high going to reach out, but is there also an effect from like a boosting effect from the negative ratings? We did find that. I mean, it, it's it's definitely lower than just the power of having a lot of people really like you. But we did find that just everything else being equal, um, having more people dislike you strongly slightly helps the amount of attention you get. I, I have no idea why my, my operating theory would be that like, you know, everybody has a sense of what everybody else is, what, what the general perception of a person is going to be. You know, I can see somebody and I might not find her really attractive, but I have a, a good sense that like, oh, I, I bet a bunch of guys think she's hot or whatever, you know. And I think what happens is if you see somebody that you're into and you think that there are a lot of people that are not for a certain type of person, it's it's like it, well, it's a turn on. It's kind of like a white knight effect, I guess, where you're like, a lot of people aren't going to be into this girl. My message is going to be the one. I'm going to find that diamond in the rough. I'm going to come in there and say, yeah, I really think you're beautiful. You probably don't hear, you know, implied you don't hear this that often. I think that's what's going on. That's not the best explanation of it. <laughs> it's hard to talk about this stuff without speaking in kind of broad and generally like macho terms. Just just for your listeners, like I, I talk like this because online dating is driven by guys approaching women. You know, 90% of the activity on the site is driven by men. Uh, first contacts, ratings, all that stuff. Um, that's true. Men are the initiators offline as well, but I think especially online, um, where for whatever reason, women just approach online dating a lot more passively than guys do. And so, you know, when I'm talking about guys hitting on 
girls and all this stuff, uh, you know, the, the, the straight male drives like 80 to 90% of the, the traffic on a dating site. You mentioned earlier the, the every guy, every age likes the same, you know, mm-hmm. the, the formula for good looking girls is the number 22, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. And much different for, for women. Yeah. There's this issue where surveys, people will be asked what they want. And very often that doesn't actually correlate with what they do or right. what they act on. Yeah. Um, do you find those gaps kind of everywhere? I wouldn't say everywhere, but certainly, well, with that example, for sure, as I was saying, like, you know, you ask guys what they want and they say they, they are looking for women roughly their same age, maybe a few years on either side. And then they go out and do what you just described. Um, for race, you know, people almost universally say race is not a factor in who they think is attractive or, you know, interracial dating is great, you know, if you ask people, but they go out and act. It's like a... Um, not in my backyard type of type of attitude with interracial dating, for example, where people will profess to say that it's fine, but they themselves do not want to do it generally. So yeah, you do see that quite a bit. I mean, it's not, not uh, people don't know themselves. I think there's also, you know, social desirability bias where they don't want to look bad to even a computer questionnaire. Um, You know, so again, these, these are all this, this kind of gap in what people say they want and then what they go out, and do trying to close that gap or negotiate that gap is a big part of running a dating site. For me, one of the most surprising and and actually kind of upsetting big bummer of a chapter in the book about trends in race in dating, um, maybe touch on what you found kind of the high level, the high level punchline, and maybe we could get into that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like this, that chapter because it speaks to the ability of data to, to like, make people talk about something that they might not otherwise talk about. And, and what's in the chapter is it basically shows that in online dating pervasively, whether it's OkCupid, Match, any dating site whose data I've ever looked at, there's a very clear racial bias against you know, black people and Asian men. Um, from, you know, when I say against black people, I'd say from Asians and from Latinos and from whites. It's not just whites versus everyone versus, you know, what are minorities. And essentially those three groups, black men, Asian men and, and black women, they have essentially 75% the experience of everyone else. You know, they get 75% the, the likes, 75% the messages, 75% the replies. They just have a kind of um, lesser experience. And facing this data, working at OkCupid, I, I get asked and we even ask ourselves, like, what can we do about this? You know, it doesn't feel good to see this kind of thing happening. And this trend has been present since I first started looking at the data. Every site I've ever seen, it's just a universal deep and broad trend. Um, what can we do about this? And, you know, they, they, after a lot of thought, the answer for us was like nothing. We can't make a change to the site that's going to make people less racist any more than like, okay, Cupid could ever change society. You know, if there's a Latino man who doesn't want to talk to black women, we can't just show him more black women. He's just going to say, well, okay, Cupid's not showing me what I want. I'm, I'm gone. You know, we're not going to change his behavior. And he probably doesn't even realize he's voting or acting the way he is anyway. That was my belief. The only thing we figured out we could do would be to publicize this data and say, hey, you know, there's often a discussion of, of like, are we, po- are we a post-racial society? You know, is racism really a thing anymore? You know, certainly a few years ago before all of the, the shootings were more made as public as they've been, this was a common perception where it's just like, you know, that, that's so 1960 to think about racial bias, you know? Um, and we published the stuff and said, no, here, here, this is really what's going on. Um, and and that, that actually was our most popular blog post. It's kind of the, I think the best part of the book to show that, that there really are, there, there are types of people 
in, in America that have just a worse experience. You know, obviously I'm looking at, at specifically online dating or, or dating in general, because I don't think it's just an online thing. But. And, and what's, what's striking about it is that it's not, it's not, as you say, just one race with one other race. It's, mm. it's that when you look at other minorities, which sure. are well represented in the sample, mm. oh, yeah. you don't see the same, you don't see the same thing happen. Yeah, no, no. I mean, Latinos have are for all intents and purposes in the data the same as white people they have the same biases against the same groups and they suffer no biases themselves yeah the data. The, you know I, I, that's obviously different than the way it works in society at large here or asian women they are part of the majority in this sense there's a yeah it, it, the chapter i think it was one chapter one section for me was the most and you say it's your one of your favorites which i agree with even though it's kind of a negative it seems to be the best example I've ever come across that sort of puts data behind this open question of post-racial America. You know, how bad is it really? Um, and this is sort of a definitive, it's literally in red in the book, a red stamp saying, you know, it, it is this bad and it's it's everywhere. Well, the thing that I enjoyed the most about writing that chapter, I agree with you, it's, it's depressing. But the thing that I guess I like the most about that chapter is that like, there's very little data about person-to-person interactions and, and how race affects those. So tons of data on how this race or that race does on the SAT or graduates from high school or, you know, income or where people live and the loans that they're getting or not getting. There's very, like, this this class of person does better than this class of person on a, some third-party thing like a test or a loan application or whatever. There's very, very little, in fact, almost no data on, like, how this one group of people interacts directly with this other group of people. And, and online dating, because we collect race and it's very reliable information um, and the people have to talk to each other, unlike on Facebook or Twitter, where you kind of can just talk to your friends who are probably like you. Uh, and the people are all strangers. So there's no kind of pre-existing network laid over this whole thing. Um, you get to look at person to person. How do, how do, how do white men interact with Asian women or, or how do white women interact with Asian men or, or black men interact with Asian women or whatever, you know, and how do those Asian women react in turn, you know, and then you get to ask and then answer a lot of really interesting questions in a way that you, you, you can't really, it's a lens that, that, that you don't see very often, it, it, a, a way of looking at race that, that you don't see very often. Well, it's a great chapter and an amazing book that I highly recommend everybody check out. It is, uh, it's not overly long. It's probably 250 pages, something yeah, like, like that. 260, yeah. And it is to my mind, one of the, one of the books that I'm surprised that not everyone has read primarily because again, um, it's, it's dealing with data that's not just, you know, here's an academic study and here's uh, a silly little, you know, five paragraph example of, of this study in the real world. Um, it's a real I don't want to say proprietary, but custom set of data um, from which we can learn a lot about one of the main aspects of our life, uh, which is kind of how we deal, interact with other people, uh, specifically in dating, but, but even in broader trends than that. So maybe we could talk a little bit about books now and some of your favorites as a reader. Obviously, you've written a book and, and have aspirations maybe for more books, but what are some of your all-time favorites, maybe even extra points for under-the-radar ones that people would not have heard of? Sure. Uh, my, my all-time favorite book is, is pretty easy. I, that's, that would be Shelby Foote's three-volume History of the Civil War. I've read it three times. Uh, when you're in a band, you have a, a lot of time just driving around. So I got really into like very long nonfiction. I read the three-part biography of, of, of Theodore Roosevelt, the, the three-part biography of Winston Churchill, tons of, tons of stuff like that. But I just love Shelby Foote's Civil War. It's easily my favorite book. 
let's see. I mean, I love Dune. I don't read that much science fiction or fantasy, but it's, uh, you know, that's the way that Frank Herbert gets the kind of like interiorness and like makes this world that's like new, but also plausible. I don't know. It, that book's also amazing. Um, more, more recent stuff. I, I really liked look who's back. Have you read this book? No, it's, it's a German book about, uh, Hitler not dying in world war two. He wakes up. It's like whatever, 2010 or something like this in Berlin. And he's just kind of like, nobody really believes that he's really out of Hitler. He is, it's kind of like a, a farce. Uh, it's kind of amazing. It's also frighteningly appropriate in the age of, he's very Trumpian. Let me put it that way in the book. Um, of course, unintentionally, this is before the, this, this election cycle, that book is great. Um, I really liked age of miracles. Have you read that? It's no. about, it's about, a, it's like a sci-fi book. Um, read it a couple times. It's, it's written from the perspective of maybe she's 13 or 14 year old girl. Uh, the world's rotation is slowing down and it just has this amazing tenderness that the science in it is actually kind of cool too, but it's just, it's just a great story. Have you read station 11? Yes. It's, it's similar in tone. Um, it's also an apocalyptic book written by a Brooklyn woman. Uh, but, <laughs> but the subjects are very different, but it has that kind of like feeling to it. I love that book. I love Asia miracles. I love station 11 too. It's a great book. I mentioned, I think I mentioned ages for Hawk earlier. I re- really like that book as well. Sounds like a lot of, a lot of nonfiction biography. Yeah. I love nonfiction. Um, yeah. But nonfiction and biography are definitely, I've spent the most time with, I've read probably way too many biographies of Napoleon. <laughs> I don't know. For some, I kind of would go deep dives. Like I was like civil war for a while. Then I was like Napoleon. I just, I know it's also kind of a Marshall topic, which isn't really my thing, but just got into it as a thing. And there's lots of stuff written about these, these people. The civil war I like so much because it touches on issues that are still just so relevant today with the way reconstruction went down and, and, you know, states rights and Americans fighting each other and, and, yeah, it's just race, obviously. Um, it's just amazing. Uh, just an amazing time in American history. How do you find new books? You know, I usually just go to the bookstore, which my bookstore is Word uh, in Greenpoint, and I just like randomly browse and grab stuff. Like I had never read anything about Abraham Lincoln or the Civil War or anything. And one day I walked in, actually a different bookstore, but I just grabbed a couple things off the shelf and read them and loved it and got really into it. Or um, same with Age of Miracles, um, just pull it off the shelf. It maybe had a little card because it's a Brooklyn or uh, yeah, it's a Brooklyn book. I grabbed it. It seemed good. I mean, I'm kind of willing to give anything a try. I finished most things I read, though. Obviously, not everything. I think the book I'm reading right now is I, I, I say this I think because I I left it at my parents' house, so it's unclear if I'm still reading it. But uh, SPQR mm-hmm. about the history of ancient Rome. Cool. Um, I've seen that on bookstands. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's kind of it's something I didn't really know anything about. You know, I, I like books about stuff I don't. I don't know what they what yeah you know, that I'm not I, I like when I'm unfamiliar with the topic. We talked a little bit offline about what may be your next project, so would love to come at that a little bit indirectly by first asking for you to describe what Math twenty five and Math fifty five are. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. I mean, Math twenty five fifty five is essentially a pair of math classes. Um, twenty five is the, the the one that you can elect to take as an incoming uh, freshman math major at Harvard. Um, it's extremely hard. Uh, I didn't take it. Um, and maybe 40, 45 people do. Um, if you do well enough in the first few weeks or, or you have such radiant talent that they identify it in you that quickly, uh, you get invited to take 55, which is a, you're basically invited by the Harvard math department to take this special class, which is for people who will eventually become professional mathematicians, essentially the best, you know, the, the 10 people that they pick 
Upper Math 55 are probably 10 of the best 100 their age in the world at math. This is like the, like the uh, Navy SEALs of, of math. Exactly <laughs> right. And you have, you know, it, certainly for, for any other math major, the people who took 55 as freshmen, you have this like aura about you your entire career. Um, I mentioned the book because, you know, the NSA recruits heavily from, from Math 55 for its employees, from, from the, that class of people who took 55. And um, government workers have this reputation of, of being, you know, kind of lazy or whatever. You think of the post office, you think sloth, you think indifference. Um, and and I, I mentioned this in the book because, uh, you know, the NSA is not like that. They're the best of the best. They're on top of it, to say the least. And so, you know, it's it's you can't really talk about data without talking about government surveillance, the NSA, privacy. And I, I make the point, um, and it still holds, that, that what the NSA is doing is powerful and you can pretty much even if you don't know exactly what it is, you can be guaranteed that it's being done uh, very well. So, you know, it gets to your points earlier about collecting data on people and and how we are increasingly quantified um, through all the major services that we use all the time that get us coming back through these sort of like dopamine snacks that, you know, a Twitter retweet provides or something like that that gets us engaged, uh, to use the industry term. I guess the next step will be even smarter methods of getting us engaged, including artificial intelligence, could you uh, kind of riff on on AI a bit, concerns, interests uh, in that field? Sure, sure. Well, let me. I guess let me start with just kind of finishing that thought about the NSA. Like with you know, when I say they, what they're doing, they're doing well. I mean, they're doing it efficiently and with focus. <laughs> um, not necessarily what they're doing is good because I think you know I, the, the, the idea of corporate data gathering and government data gathering just usually those two very separate things get subsumed to this one idea of all these guys have all this data about us and it's violating our privacy. And I actually think kind of from the inside, I see it as two very different issues. The corporate side has its own problems. I mean, they're gathering data to sell you things, which is annoying. I don't like seeing ads any more than anyone else. I don't like spam based on the emails that I've sent. However, the way they're doing it is aggregated. Advertising sells a product to a consumer, which could be all people for Coca-Cola, but could also be uh, for Axe body spray, you know, 18 to 25 year old guys or, or even a ner- more narrow slice of the world. But it's never to a particular person, like no company, OkCupid, Facebook, Twitter, no company is pulling out individual profiles, individual people and asking, you know, what, what is this person been up to? What are they into? What are they like? What are they, what are they going to do next? Who are they talking to? That never happens. Um, uh, it's one thing not worth the time. There's all kinds of rules in place to keep that from, from happening. It's just not a thing. Um, that's the corporate side of, of or what corporations do with your data. Um, the government has sort of the reverse relationship. Nobody at the NSA is looking at, at what's going on and saying, you know, uh, you know, let's go, let's go arrest 25 year old guys. It just doesn't happen. They're looking at a specific 25 year old guy, who he's talking to, what he's doing, what he likes, what he might do next with, with a name and an address and a family. Um, and, uh, it's far more, uh, pernicious and, and I think and, and invasive for that specificity. And it just, I think it's important when people are thinking about privacy to separate the actual use case for the data um, and therefore the implications for any individual. Anyhow, I think as people employ algorithms to make decisions about data or anything else, you know, computers are obviously getting smarter. Um, and I think I'm in, I'm in that camp that thinks eventually, you know, in, tw- in 20 years, there will be a, um, a kind of general computer intelligence that will be as smart as a human being 
and therefore will quickly become way smarter than a human being. And that, that could have, you know, grave implications for the way the world works, the way life exists on the planet. I think you'll essentially be creating a God, a real God, and that just is a frightening idea. Is, is there anything we can do? I'm, th- I'm thinking about like Asimov's rules of robotics or something. Are, are there are there things that we can do before that happens that <laughs> make that God benevolent or, you know, remain under our control? Um, you know, what, what are some of the potential solutions here? Or, or is this just, are we just on a path that we can't get off of. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I haven't thought as deeply or as well on this thing as, as, as you know, Nick Bostrom, uh, who wrote a book called Super, Super Intelligence, Intelligence yeah. which is great. Maybe you've already, your listeners maybe already know about it f- through you. Um, but I think, like, first of all, any super intelligence that exists, it's going to be a roll of the dice, no matter how well thought out it is by us. In the same way that you're, you never know what's going to happen when you have a kid, um, no matter your genes or how you raise it or whatever. Um, who knows? but even more so with this. But that said, I mean, we obviously owe it to our children, certainly to ourselves to, to give a super intelligence, the best odds of, of being altruistic and having it benefit all mankind rather than destroying it. And I think the best way to do that is some kind of Los Alamos level Manhattan project level, national or hopefully global coordinated effort to, to have everyone agree and work on together relatively in the open on this project because I think whether it's a a single government agency kind of doing it in secret the NSA the Chinese government um, the Russian government I mean who knows any 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 government because it will be the security apparatus or defense apparatus that's going to create this thing or a corporate entity you know I wouldn't want the programmers at Twitter coming up with the ruler for the entire world, you know, it's just, that sounds horrible to me, almost as bad as the NSA, because who knows, they're just there's some jokers in Silicon Valley, you know, I mean, I, I love programmers in general, certainly everybody I've worked with, I love it, okay, Cupid, I would not want the programmers at okay, Cupid coming up with an AI, it would, uh, that would be horrible. So, and I think a, a kind of secretive, uh, fractured effort at creating this thing, um, everyone moving in parallel, racing towards a goal, you cut corners when you race, um, and it's something that if the wrong corners are cut, uh, it could, it could, you know, we I, don't know I, what might happen. yeah, we don't know what might happen and it could, it could destroy the world. I mean, I don't want to sound like a lunatic. It's really hard to talk about a kind of AI apocalypse uh, without seeming like a crazy person because of things like Terminator, you know, and, and, and I don't know who knows what else ex machina, which was, I love, I bought those movies, but you know, the, the thing is not going to be running around doing karate chops or shooting people with a shotgun or something, you know, that's like what a person would do. I think it'll be maybe more painless death for everyone, but everyone will die rather than just like a couple, you know, extras. It's I've read a lot of places about the intermediate step, I guess, before we get to some sort of super intelligence being automation of pretty much anything repeatable, right? That um, if you're, if you're 21 and thinking about a career, something where you're an automaton in the sort of command and control hierarchy type company, that just doesn't make sense anymore because machines are going to be, be able to do it better and more efficiently so it seems like, or at least this is what the most common refrain is, okay, so focus instead on creative aspects, on um, being the person at a frontier who creates something new and establishes it, a new niche, a new product, whatever, and then lets machines or automation handle it from there. But it sounds like if there is this level of intelligence, if creativity in some way is a reflection of our level of intelligence, and I think of creativity as just recognizing patterns, if an AI is smarter than us, it's going to, it could potentially take that too, 
uh, take the creative component too. And then the question is, well, what's left, what's left for us to do? I mean, I think though that question, people are going to have to answer that question even before there's a general AI, even before there's kind of like, you know, specific AIs, because, um, you know, I mean, automated cars are going to put millions of people out of work, uh, self-driving cars. And so like, you know, I mean, these are automation in general is going to be a huge economic challenge and therefore social challenge, I think, which of course, you know, I, I would be more sanguine about if I thought the government could like agree to get stuff done, but I think it's going to take some kind of, it's going to be a shock. I, I think, what do you do when there's 5 million people who can't feed their kids? You know, I think there's going to have to be some kind of redistribution of, because, you know, for example, if, if Uber no longer employs drivers, Uber shareholders are all the richer, you know? And I think there's going to have to be essentially a tax on the use of artificial intelligence that will have to end up back in the pockets of the people that it's displaced. One of the things that that I've found looking at the data is this kind of rich getting richer. Obviously, everyone knows about economic inequality. And, and, and actually, there's been some recent changes in that data that's at least a little encouraging at the, uh, the kind of wage level. But what we found is if you look at the, let's say, profit margins of the highest profit margin companies, right? So there's always a group that's the highest margin. What's the margin of that group? That has been steadily rising, meaning more and more is accruing to the winners. And there's sort of this like magnified power law thing going on. And like you mentioned, you know, you don't want one guy somewhere that created this AI and has a massively disproportionate amount of the power influence. Um, it seems like that's like impossible to guard against because it's so much easier to start a company to program something one person five people uh, it doesn't take a corporation anymore well i mean it's not hard to guard against it if you well if people if you make the right laws and people obey them you know i mean you could tax that income i mean you know i look i mean i i think it'll just be interesting to see where things are in like 10 years if for the kind of 99 or the the 0.1% of the world is it worth it to them to them to have whatever incremental dollars at the cost of, you know, living in fear of social unrest, for example, like, do we want this to be like a South Africa type situation, not racially necessarily, but just in terms of there's certain people who live under guard all the time. And there's people who want what they have, you know, it doesn't sound that attractive to me personally. You, you mentioned this as a potential, you know, project of yours you know, for exploring this more, maybe writing about it. Um, what what's what's your particular angle? Like, what aspects of of this big question are you most interested in, and do you feel you know you'd have the sort of inside track on exploring? You know, I mean, I I have an inside track on how kind of tech businesses are run, and I would like to take my knowledge of how decisions are made. In a, in a in a big tech company, how computer programs really get written, essentially, and 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 maybe run through a sort of speculative nonfiction walkthrough, essentially, of of like how it could happen, you know, just to make it more real. I, I think like Nick Bostrom's book is amazing. It's extremely dense, uh, as I know you know, um, and its power and its density also make it somewhat inapproachable for, for most people. It's like, you know, whatever, you know, it's, it's very, it's very rigorously argued. And I think I would like to get on, honestly, sensationalize the ideas a little bit more, but make them not, not the Terminator, the kind of like Hollywood version, but like what this could really, this is exactly what could really happen, you know, for example, you know, and just lay it out and, and maybe tell the story from a personal level on the effects it would have, you know, what the apocalypse would feel like, uh, 
I don't know, just so people, I, 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 you know, when I talk to people about this, like there are a lot of people, have ne- certainly have never heard of Nick Bostrom, never really considered the idea that the thing that's going to help them not have to drive their cars anymore, given 10 years to grow, could have like grave implications for the for the world. And, and I just want to spell it out a little bit more. Like, yeah, I just got to figure out how to do it. Are there other writers in this area, Bostrom being sort of impenetrable for for me certainly and for a lot of people uh, yeah, um, that, that you like to read. Yeah. Do, do, are there other writers that or, or pieces or essays or anything that that you've read that you think is interesting and good i mean i thought the wait but why um i can't remember the guys tim wrote. urban yeah. yeah yeah uh the wait but why you know super intelligence explanation which they talk about bostrom a lot in that book is actually pretty compelling and very approachable um uh, you know, the singularity is of course a very famous book. I've tried to read it. It's, it's sitting on my nightstand. It's, it's not very exciting to read. It's a lot of charts all kind of pointing up into the right in a logarithmic fashion. <laughs> Basically fashion. things grow exponentially. Here's like a hundred cool technologies. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which is cool. I mean, it, you can't discount the vision that it takes to think of this stuff, but it's not a great read for sure. Um, I'm working through this kind of Stanford AI commission kind of white paper right now um honestly i would recommend the bostrom is worth the time if you're if you're into kind of slightly more technical reading the way but why explanation is really great if you uh you say you know key inside track is understanding how big tech companies work if you were giving advice to a 21 year old um interested in it could be finance it could be any of these fields that's increasingly data centric um quantitative what skill sets do you think um have the most value maybe are the most undervalued or even overvalued um that that people should focus on as they're thinking about their careers i think i mean that the skill set the skills that have been most important to me and what i've done is has been a kind of kind of real real world experience or like a sense of how people work you know i i haven't spent my entire life in an academic department, um, done a lot of different things. I think that is extremely helpful in analyzing data. You, cause you're it's certainly when you're working at OkCupid and I assume also any, any data analysis in a social setting, Facebook, Twitter, aside from their advertising data analysis, but you just really, your, your goal is to understand human behavior, the behaviors that are generating the data that you see and the psychology that is generating the behaviors that are generating the data that you see and some experience with, with people. I know this is so cliched and stupid, but like you just have to be able to understand, at least make intelligent guesses about what people want from your website, what people want from the page, what they want from the button that you're doing, why they're doing things. Some of it is just armchair theorizing that you could, can't prove either way, but you've got to make decisions based on whatever conclusion your math is spitting out. And so I, I just think a kind of like humanistic, education, reading a lot, doing a lot of different things really, 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 really helps. Like the math is, it's not that hard, you know, it, it's, it's what you do with the results of the math. That's always by far the hardest part. And you know, like to what you said, which hopefully made it in here is that to, to picking the right metric to, to manage against. you got to do that intelligently just in case it wasn't covered. Uh, you know, at, at, at OkCupid, you know, in the early days, you, you think of a website, you're thinking engagement, you're thinking time on site, you're thinking page views. Well, you know, it occurred to us very early on that like, those are crappy metrics for a dating site. It doesn't, you know, what does it say about a dating service if somebody is coming day after day after day after day for two years or something like this? That looks great for Twitter. That's horrible for us. You know, they're not finding a date. 
So we ended up having, after a lot of thought and trial and error, uh, we ended up picking this metric called four ways, which is essentially conversations, how many separate deep conversations are happening on OkCupid, because that's what we want to generate. We want people talking to each other. People come to OkCupid to meet people. How do we proxy them meeting someone? And that's, they're having a conversation on our site, you know, because we don't know whether people actually meet up in person or not. And so, you know, that, that was a really important decision. If we had been managing towards page views or clicks or even just raw messages, our site would have failed. Like raw messages doesn't work because people send, might be sending all those messages just to the same handful, relative handful of, of attractive people, for example, and ignoring everyone else. And they're not getting responses. They're not happy. The recipient isn't happy, et cetera, et cetera. So we really had to like dig to create the right metric for success for us. And I think that's because, you know, we, we thought about it a lot and, and we were able to kind of work back from what do people want out of our website uh, and figure out a metric that we felt like could measure that the best. Seems like another way of, of this idea, of saying this idea that what really matters is coming up with the right questions, not so much the answers, um, that we, we're much better at answering stuff now because oh, sure. we've got tools and data. Yeah, yeah. Um, but getting the right um, motivations, the right questions, the right measurables is is the fat is the search mission that will be will, will yield a lot of fruit um, for budding entrepreneurs for you know young workers absolutely and for writers frankly I mean you know I mean that was the hardest part about writing dataclism was you know asking the right questions and the data was all there like I had data from Twitter Facebook you know Google reams and reams and reams of it from OkCupid you know I, I had but I had to figure out what questions can I answer what questions should I ask. What questions uh, would people want to read the answer to? You know, um, and, and to a degree, that's always going to be the, the question for any for any author. Do you think that there's a, a, cer- a certain type of person that's best suited to having gone through it twice yourself, the kind of entrepreneurial startup type setting? Um, are there are there people that maybe should avoid it? Uh, some, maybe maybe the, maybe the answer is a negative one that that it's not for everyone. Um, you know, I guess I, I mean I'm sure it's not for everyone, or I would imagine. I've worked with the same group of three other guys both times um, and things have turned out very well both times. And, 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 and so it's, I don't know the failure case luckily enough, you know? Um, But I think there is a lot of luck involved. Uh, I think we, me, my co-founder, Chris Coyne talk about all the time. Like we're smart guys. We worked hard. Things could have gone sideways very easily, you know? Um, And, and, and so I wish more entrepreneurs would recognize the amount of luck that has gone into their success because there's a tremendous amount. Um, that said, I mean, somebody who, the, the way to position yourself best for success and, and an inherently, and, and, and the, in the big crapshoot that is starting your own company, I think you have to be willing to try a bunch of stuff. I think people, I mean, obviously there's counterexamples, but people who doggedly stick to the same idea, regardless of whether it works or not, I think that's a recipe for, for disappointment a lot of the time. I think you have to be flexible. God, we tried all kinds of garbage at OkCupid through the, you know, we started that company in 2003. We weren't even really a thing until 2008 or nine. So there were, there were some real uh, lean years for us. Um, you should be extremely persistent because we, we held on through all the lean years, but you shouldn't be to beholden to a single idea in your persistence, you know, be committed to the idea of having your company, but don't necessarily be too committed to, you know, this one match algorithm that you swear is going to work or that people are going to love, you know, or this one idea of bringing people together, just use a dating example. It's one idea of how dating should work in defiance of whether people like it or not. You've got to, you've got to keep an open mind and you've got to be able to listen to the data that's coming back. You said that, okay, Cupid's growth was not this kind of classic, 
massive exponential ramp up growth that people hear about in the most famous startups, but was much more kind of linear, slow and steady. And that there were those lean years. How do you know, or how did you know, and maybe it was just pure persistence, whether or not something was worth continuing to pursue? I mean, were there, were there times in that, in those early years when you guys discussed, well, maybe this just isn't going to ramp in the way that, that we wanted it to? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, we didn't, we didn't know, you know, and that's the hardest thing is, is like that, that is the hardest part about being an entrepreneur, I think, is when your idea is doing okay. When it sucks, hey, walk away, you know, obviously shut it down. When it's great, when you've created uh, Facebook, only an idiot would not realize that that's going well, you know, and and that you've you've hit a home run and would not want to stick with it and hire a bunch of people and really throw themselves into a a nascent Facebook, you're right. But what do you do when things are like, all right, you know, I I don't know if it's really going to be successful, like we're stable now, but but it's not stable long term, I might have might be wasting my, my time and my money. That's very hard. And, and that's, it really helped. There were four of us that were friends. If it had been one person, even maybe just two people who had started OkCupid, I don't know if it would have lasted through those times because it just, certainly if it were one person, no way. Because you're just like, eh, you know, I'm just going to go get a job, <laughs> you know? What was, what was the division of labor and maybe skill set like amongst the co-founders? You said there was four, right? There were four, yeah. uh-huh, so, sure. so how much overlap was there in like responsibilities and skill set and how did that get, um, sh- how did that shake out? Very little overlap at any given time in terms of the roles people were filling. I think we do have some actual overlap in kind of core skills. I mean, for example, like I worked primarily on the editorial and the kind of product and the, the the viral content marketing, you know, aka the the blog um, and a few other things, until about 2011. At which point, I basically became the CEO of the company for the last four years and ran. I just dealt with a PNL and did almost nothing uh, traditionally thought of as creative, you know. Um, but it's among the founders, you know, Chris Coyne and. And, and I, to a much lesser degree, Chris would, would work on the product. He would do the front end. He would come up with the kind of ideas of, of like what feature is going to be on OKCupid. What feature should we try? Um, Max Crone uh, was um, is a fantastic programmer. He wrote all the back end, made it scalable, made it work. With that, without him, there would be no no code to put a front end for, for Chris to put a front end on. Um, Sam uh, Yegan was the CEO before me, and he later became the CEO of the entire Match Enchilada. He's an amazing negotiator, a business person. He did the things that you think of a CEO as doing. And so we did never really stepped... Chris and I were most similar in our roles. Like We both kind of worked on the content and the things that the users would actually interact with. We have a great kind of professional relationship. The you know Max definitely had his own single domain. Sam definitely had his own single domain. And that helped a lot, because that way we weren't arguing over who was better at X, Y, or Z. And you know, you don't know how to do this or, you know, we, we definitely respected those fences between our roles and that, that, that was very important. Obviously it seems like one of your key advantages is the creative side, right? In writing and music and, um, the blog for, for both spark and, and okay. Cupid, what was it like being the more traditional CEO in contrast to, you know, those more, uh, I mean, it was interesting, pursuits. you know, I, I became the, 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 the CEO, um, of, of okay. Cupid, um, kind of after the blog had run its course, I already had my, I was already working on my book. So I felt like creatively, I kind of did what I would ever have wanted to do with OkCupid's data and that whole scene, you know, and I had a creative outlet, i.e. the book. Um, So, and business is creative in its own way. You know, I mean, I had to figure out how to take our P&L, which at the time I took over was, you know, say we were making 
I think I took over in mid 11 and I think our final EBITDA for that year was like 6 million bucks. Like, you know, match bought us in earlier that earlier that year because they wanted a lot more out of it. And, and, you know, the year I left, I think made close to 40, you know, it was like a cool challenge to take, especially to take the, um, the, the, the principles of, of how to run a business that match knew very well, um, sometimes to their own detriment, uh, but they knew very well, uh, and lay that over OkCupid, get the employees to buy into it and, and lay it over the website in a way that the users didn't find, um, off-putting. So it was cool. It was, it was, I enjoyed it. It was weird for sure. I mean, I had definitely not ever discussed any finer points of accounting or any, you know, org charts and none of that stuff. I didn't know any of that stuff when I took the role, which of course I was promoted to because I was a founder and it's just like what I needed to do at the time. How many employees was it when you left? Let's say when I left was maybe 32, 34, 35, something like that. It's a pretty small organization. You know everyone. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, book, a book being an ambition potentially on the, this kind of, um, nonfiction narrative around AI. Um, any other entrepreneurial, um, seeds kind of brewing in your head? Um, you know, I mean, I would like to do something. One of the things that we all really liked about OkCupid and one of the reasons that we started that business as opposed to like an ad network or something, you know, uh, in 2003 was that it created like some kind of like positive real world outcome. You know, people are falling in love, having sex, whatever, you know, based on what we were doing as a business, you know, and the business's goal was to make more of that happen in the real world, you know? And so we really liked that and we, we could have, you know, whatever, we were all good with computers. We were all math people. We could have started some kind of like, you know, in an ad network or some other kind of thing and probably made a lot more money. And I would like to stay true to that idea to create some kind of like positive real world thing. I'm a little tired of the internet at this point, you know, um, been through, I started at Sparknotes in 99. That's like the first bubble, pre first bubble, you know, I've kind of like been through all You've that. done that. Yeah, a little bit, you know. I, again, some some of it I haven't done very well, and there's been a lot of luck through that the whole time. But yeah, I've done that. So yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of I'm I'm kicking around a few ideas. I'm I'm really into farm animal welfare, animal welfare in general, just personally. And I would love a business, whatever I work on, to reflect that or increase. What's, what's your that. What's the background there? How did How did that become a, a passion? I mean, I'm just I don't know. I mean, I've been a vegetarian for a long time. So is my wife. So is my daughter. It's just something I've thought about a lot. You know, actually, I really liked Jonathan Safar Eating Animals book. I was kind of already on board before that. I imagine most of his readers probably were, but like, you know, I thought that was a great way to, to talk about it. And I feel like it's like, you know, it's really hard to talk about this without sounding preachy, but I feel like it's like a weird, it's, 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 it's one of the most notable inconsistencies in most people's lives, I think is how they treat animals. Like lots of people have pets and love them and then yet pay for people to torture very, very similar animals just right down the road and then eat them, you know? Um, and so I, it's just an interesting thing to me the, the way people treat animals. Um, and, uh, and I since become friends with this guy named David Coman Heidi. He's, he runs this um, nonprofit called the Humane League that I really love how they do things and talk to him more. So I've just kind of like, you know, whatever. I've just bought into it. Everybody's got their ideas, but very neat. Are there other um, entrepreneurs or budding companies? We've talked a lot about writers and books, but other ideas that are being acted on or in the early stages of being acted on that that you're following with interest. 
um, or or appreciate today? Um, well, I mean, t- two of Chris and Max from the OKCupid team, they started this company called Keybase, which is this kind of attempt to make essentially unbreakable cryptography accessible to everyone. Um, you don't have to understand PGP or or you know one-way functions and hashes and all this stuff to make sure your documents and your your communications are completely private. You know, from Apple, from Google, from Iran, from the NSA, um, and it's a really hard problem actually because the math and and the, it requires complexity, um, and so it's a very hard problem to to essentially hide that complexity yet make it actually work. So they're they've been working on that. It's called Keybase. It's really cool. I mean, I'm an investor, full disclosure, but I think it's interesting regardless. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a variety of kind of smaller companies that I think are doing cool things. Yeah, I mean, there's. I work a little bit with this company that's that's uh, trying to make eye, online eye tests, so you so you know so you don't have to go to the ophthalmologist to like figure out that you can't see or get your prescription. I think that's like a pretty cool idea. Um, I don't. I guess I don't really follow. I'm not really a big like entrepreneur scenester. You know, I'm too old. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean. I don't. Sp- I try to spend as little time as possible, although I check my phone as much as anybody else. But I, I hate myself every time I do it. I try to spend as little time as possible, like screwing around on the internet because it, you know, it sucks up a lot of time. You know, and and I, I want to set a good example for my daughter. Um, you know, I'm not like the world's like biggest tech enthusiast, I guess. Right. So thank you so much for all the time today, and hope everyone enjoyed the talk. Yeah, it's my pleasure, man. I had a good time. Hey everyone, Patrick here again. To find more episodes of Invest Like the Best, go to investorfieldguide.com forward slash podcast. If you're a book lover, you can also sign up for my book club at investorfieldguide.com forward slash book club. After you sign up, you'll receive a full investor curriculum right away and then three to four suggestions of new books every month. You can also follow me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Oshag, O-S-H-A-G. If you enjoy the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes, which will help more people discover Invest Like the Best. Thanks so much for listening.